Hi, my name is Brian Jost. I've been hosting most of the episodes so far, but this episode is an entire Get to Know Nami session hosted by our staff member Kay King. So you get to hear the full session and learn about what Nami Minnesota is, what we have to offer, and how you can become involved. Enjoy. Welcome to Mental Health in Minnesota, produced by Nami Minnesota, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the lives of children and adults with mental illnesses and their families. Visit Nami Minnesota online at namihelps.org. Well, welcome everyone. I'm Kay King, and I am a community educator for NAMI Minnesota, and I'm also, uh, my specific area of expertise is older adults, but I do lots of training on adult mental health. And I've been with NAMI eight years this July, and I also um, am just pleased to also do Get to Know NAMI, which we offer almost 20 times a year. Some of them are at night, some of them are daytime here in our offices. So I'm really glad that you came today. And at NAMI, um, we're in the state office, and Sue, our executive director, I'm thrilled that she could join us because it is legislative session and she's our chief lobbyist in, in addition to being our executive director. So she's going to give you a little overview of NAMI. Then after that, we have two speakers that you're going to have a chance to hear. And after that, then I'll spend the remaining 40 minutes or so talking about resources of support, education, and advocacy at NAMI Minnesota. So welcome, pleased to have you here. And I'll turn it over to our executive director, Sue Abderholden. Thank you for coming this morning. Um, we think it's important for people to kind of get to know NAMI a little bit better. And thanks, Kay, for um, doing this every month. So as Brian mentioned, this is our 40th anniversary. Um, we actually were formed in 1976 when a group of, frankly, mainly women, um, so it's easy to remember how to say NAMI. Um, it was the NAMI mommies um, who gathered around the kitchen table and Hastings State Hospital was closing. And they said, if you're gonna close Hastings State Hospital, you have to move that money into the community. But they were just gonna close it down and take the money and move it to other state institutions. So they actually went down to the Capitol. Um, they had never done this before. They went down and they did it. They passed a bill that created actually the first funding for community-based services in Minnesota. One of the reporters said, um, when talking to the legislators, the legislators said, we'll do anything, just call off the mothers. <laughs> um, so I think that just kind of shows the tenacity you know, from which we started. Um, from there, we actually formed um, officially as an organization in 77, which is why we're kind of doing this celebration through this fiscal year, and first became the Mental Health Advocates Coalition, and then went to Madison to help actually form the National NAMI organization. So when you think about kind of the history of the mental health movement, it's not very long. 40 years is not very long. Um, we like to say that we don't have a broken mental health system. The reality is we never built it. Um, when you look at, especially now, talking about <coughs> black grants, that's why we were never able to build the system. You couldn't bill insurance, you couldn't bill Medicaid, you couldn't bill Medicare. And so if you don't have any real money coming in, you can't build a system. Um, and so that really has been kind of a part of our work for these 40 years. We use kind of three words to describe ourselves, education, support, and advocacy, and all three go together. So the education classes are really important so people can learn about mental illness, they can learn how to talk about it. They're peer-led support groups so that you know you're not alone. And the advocacy piece is really connected to all three because you don't go down to the Capitol if you don't know how to talk about mental illness and if you think they're the only one. And so in some ways, our education classes and support groups are the breeding ground, frankly, for our advocacy work, um, which is really important. 
Um, we also work a lot on public attitudes. I've been around long enough that I know that you can't just change laws, you actually have to change public attitudes. And as you know, there's a lot of discrimination around mental illness, a lot of you know poor negative attitudes about it. Um, what we know is that according to the research, the best way to actually change attitudes is for someone to share their own story. And so we have the interim voice program, we have a public speaking program, so that people are actually sharing their stories. And kind of the way, if you think about the way that works, I go to what I call the animal clubs, the lions, the moose, the um, rotary clubs. And when you go there and you ask them, so if you close your eyes, what's the first image of someone with a serious mental illness that comes to mind? It's never anyone that looks like you. I mean, they always think about someone who's maybe homeless on the Nicolette Mall, wearing a heavy coat in the middle of July. It's no one that you could relate to. So when people actually share their stories and you look up and you go, well, that could be me, that could be a neighbor, that could be a family member, um, it really does break down those barriers to talk about mental illness. Um, nearly 100% of the board and staff either live with a mental illness or have a family member. So we really get it. Um, I'm a family member. And so having been through this, um, we can actually connect so much more easily, frankly, um, to people who call us and for the classes we give and things like that. So we think that's an important part. Um, I'll just briefly mention in terms of the legislative work, um, which really is an important part of our work you know, from the beginning, um, we really have made great progress um, over the last, particularly the last 10 years. We now have um, a strong mental health parity bill, although its enforcement needs a little help, and we did have a bill introduced this session to do that. Um, we work on a number of issues. It's not just one thing. So we typically could go in anywhere between 15 and 20 bills. So we look at housing issues, making sure there's affordable, supportive housing. We look at education issues, making sure that children who have a mental illness in schools are really doing and getting the support they need to be able to do well. Um, we even look at higher education. Um, we look at jobs um, as well, because we know people need employment. And human services, of course, is huge. And also corrections. Um, so this year, we actually had a bill to limit the use of solitary confinement in our prisons. Um, it's hanging on by a thread in terms of, be, of it being passed. I just talked to the governor's office this morning, but we're hopeful that in the end we'll be able to pass that law. Um, but so every year we're really fighting for increased funding um, and reducing any of the discriminatory public policies that we have so we can continue to grow our system. Federal level is also a huge issue, especially this year um, with the um, American Healthcare Act passing last week, which would dramatically change um, Medicaid in a way that would not be good um, in terms of us building our mental health system. Um, so something that we met with Congressman Emery yesterday. So it's something that we continue um, to work on. Um, <clears throat> sorry, in terms of our funding sources, um, it's kind of a third and a third and a third between uh, foundation funding, um, government contracts that we bid for, and then individual donations and fundraising. And so um, every dollar that comes into NAMI is used well. We use the backside of paper, you know, things like that, um, to try to really make sure that we're using our resources wisely. And so, but we really do depend on individual donations. So um, if you're not a member, we certainly encourage you to, you know, to do so and to support NAMI in some way, whether it's, you know, through an individual donation or by um, joining the walk, which is actually a really fun event. You know, great music, although Minnesotans don't dance in the daylight. Um, <laughs> But, um, but it's fun anyway. So, um, so that's just kind of a, a brief thing. We reach a lot of people. Last year we reached over 100,000 people through all of our um, classes and support groups, which I think is um, pretty amazing for an organization of our size. 
Um, I think more recently, the last couple of years, we've focused a lot on suicide prevention as well, which I know Kay will go into, but we really try to touch all those different um, areas, areas as needs arise. Smoking cessation, you know, as people started dying earlier, then we started focusing on that. So I think we're also a pretty um, um, uh, nimble organization in terms of being able to apply um, and address needs as they arise. That's kind of a brief overview. Any? Quick questions, or I think did I'm, I miss I'm something? just going to have maybe Sue chime in if she wants to. But we have 27 affiliates, so we're the state office, and every state in the United States has a NAMI chapter. But then, depending on how large the cities are in your state, you might have, um, for example, in California, there's a NAMI Los Angeles because <coughs> the city itself is big enough for a chapter. Minnesota isn't quite as populated as California, so we have kind of regional um, affiliates. So we have like greater Minnesota, the greater Duluth area, or we have Moorhead, Crookston kind of area. Um, we have an affiliate that's kind of the greater Rochester area. But in the metro area, we do have by county. So NAMI Anoka County, NAMI St. Ramsey County, which is the St. Paul area, NAMI Hennepin County. So when I talk about volunteer opportunities, um, those are places you can volunteer also for those um, organizations. We have about 27 affiliates. And then and, and all are run by volunteers except for one. <laughs> so, And budget-wise, um, you said it's kind of a third and a third, but we're about $2.2 Sue? Um, just around $2 million. Um, and we've grown a lot. When I came 15 years ago, our budget was 160000 So we've really focused on growing our organization to meet the needs. Um, we are now one of the largest state organizations in the country, um, even bigger than New York State and, and some of those as well. Um, and, I, and I think part of it is just that we've really tried to <clears throat> think outside the box um, in terms of how we address issues and making sure that, you know, with advocacy work, working closely with the media um, and things like that so that they really do know us. And if there's a story in the paper, if we're not quoted in it, I can guarantee you that we've been, give, we've been giving um, background information to the reporters to make sure that the story is shaped well. And so if you have any questions, Sue's very accessible, but I'll answer what I can. And then if I can't answer something, you know, Sue will certainly get the information so that it can be shared with you. So really appreciate it, Sue. Thank you. Thanks, Kate. Yeah. And next, um, we have two other speakers. And so we're just going to quickly um, get them set up. And then we will, um, after the two speakers, then we'll go through resources that we have so that you have some sense of our education program support. And Who's then a little bit more advocacy information. Good morning. I'm uh, Bob Swanson. I may uh, have four adult children, ten grandchildren, and a little shy of two years ago, I retired from the uh, construction industry. I was involved in the as a painting contractor for the and in the industry for 45 years. Uh, I'm also a, what's called a suicide loss survivor. My oldest son, Michael, died uh, by suicide on March 13, 2009, at the age of 33. And you may have noticed I used the term died by suicide. I did that on purpose. Uh, in my view, and it's my opinion, as long as we say committed suicide, we can blame the person for their death. And I choose to blame the diseases that my son lived with for his death. Uh, he did not want to die. He wanted his pain to end. So that's why I use the term died by suicide, and I would encourage you to do the same. So Michael, uh, Born June 4th, 1975. He was a, a, all his early childhood and teachers, anybody that came in contact with him up through, up through actually junior high school, uh, curious, caring, 
highly animated, uh, very smart, high energy, loved life. Uh, just and <laughs> his curiosity always came out in, in two phrases that as a parent sometimes drove me crazy, why and how come. And if you've got kids, you know, that's pretty common, but with Michael it was all the time. He wanted to know about his world, wanted to know why, how it worked. Uh, at the time we didn't know, but I, I, looking back I would say around ninth grade his behavior was changing. He was becoming more agitated, not as happy. Uh, less energy, uh, more uh, likely not to get up and get going in the morning. Uh, grades were struggling and we just had no, no idea what was going on. Uh, somewhere in a year or two after that he was uh, diagnosed, misdiagnosed with uh, clinical depression. Again, I've learned a lot through NAMI over the years. Uh, we, I now know that that's pretty common with the diagnosis of mental illnesses. A lot of times it's not fully diagnosed until mid to late 20s, and in Michael's case that was also applied. Uh, high school was a struggle, but he did graduate and uh, got accepted and went to Augsburg College. <clears throat> the freshman year, I did exceptionally well fall semester. And as he progressed through the winter course and the spring semester, things kind of fell apart. And I now know that one of his illnesses was seasonal affective disorder. He didn't know that, we didn't know that, but that's what he struggled through every spring. So because of that, his four-year program ended up being about a nine-year program. Uh, he also struggled with relationships, uh, employment, so somewhere in that college years, uh, we became aware of NAMI. And our family, we took the fa uh, family to family program. It's a one night a week for 12 weeks. Excellent program, I'd encourage anyone to take it. Uh, from that program, we learned a lot, a lot about mental illnesses. We learned a lot about medication. But what we really learned, we weren't alone. Up until that point, because of the shame and stigma of mental illness, we didn't share it with anybody. It was a lonely journey for Michael and for our family. After that, we had a resource to go to, and as Sue mentioned, education, it's, it's vital. We knew somebody was there to support us, and uh, we got involved with one of the chapters, started attending chapter meetings. It was a great help to our family. So back to Michael for a minute. Uh, at age 23, he was assaulted and sustained a major head wound, and I think that accelerated his uh, illnesses. And uh, at age 29, he had his first attempt. And as I said, uh, age 33, uh, he died by suicide. So in my view, there's lots that we need to do different. And a lot of that's terminology. Sue will talk about some of that. Maureen will also. First off, how we refer to people with a mental illness. It's very common for people to say he's bipolar, he's schizophrenic. But we don't say he's cancer, we don't say he's heart disease, why? There we're separating the person from the illness. And I would submit as long as we say he's bipolar, we are blaming the person for their illness. We don't blame anyone for their physical illness. Michael was ashamed of the fact that he lived with bipolar disorder, seasonal affective disorder, anxiety disorder, and 
abuse of alcohol. He was ashamed of that. He couldn't figure out why he couldn't get better. It wasn't his fault. It wasn't our fault as parents, but we lived with that also. So we need to separate the illness from the person. The second thing I would submit, uh, we need to create the environment, as NAMI does, where we can talk about these issues in a non-emotional way, non-blaming way, and then just have way more facilities available so people get the help they need. So last, I'd like to leave you with NAMI's principles of support. We will see the individual first, not the illness. We recognize mental illnesses are medical illnesses. We aim for better coping skills. We find strength in sharing experiences. We reject stigma in ourselves and others. Very important. We won't judge anyone's pain as less than our own. We forgive ourselves and reject guilt. We embrace humor as healthy. We accept we cannot resolve all problems. We expect a better future in a realistic way. And I would say the last in my mind is the most important. We will never give up hope. So thank you for letting me join you. Hi, my name is Maureen Edstrom. I had such a wonderful childhood and I grew up with siblings and wonderful loving parents in a small town. And so my life was really good, went to college, um, got married, got divorced, but I did have a daughter, so I was a single mom. And at age 39, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Now, because life had been pretty normal all the way along, there was no history of mental illness in my family, I learned since then that there are environmental triggers. It's a medical illness, but it can be caused by environmental triggers. Many of you probably know that. I had um, a serious seven-year relationship that ended, which put me in kind of a downward spiral into depression. And I waited two years to get any help. And when I did check into a mental hospital, I didn't come out again for about six weeks. I was in pretty, pretty bad shape. But one of the things that I realized uh, now is that it's important, number one, to get help ahead of time. Don't wait until you're in a psychotic state so that you can't function very well. The good news is, is that I had tremendous family support. I had a lot of people around me, friends, and everyone was there to make sure Maureen got better. So after about six weeks in the hospital and I was discharged and my family was, whew, we're sure glad that's over, Maureen's better. And um, we went home and of course that wasn't the case necessarily. I, the medication had done wonders and I was functional, but I still had a lot of work to do. In and out of the hospital five more times in the next year and a half. And once I had, um, again I said I had medication and different things were tried. Um, I had ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, and after that, I kind of turned the corner and I started to get more stable, focused, I could concentrate again, went back to work, and here I am today. And so over this time, which was actually 26 years ago that I went through that situation, with fortunately, I have not had a relapse or not been back in the hospital. But it's been kind of a long road, you know, once you go through that and you suddenly realize 
or I realized something needs to change because whatever I was doing that caused me to have the breakdown and the psychotic episodes and everything, I knew I needed to do differently. Obviously, they recommended therapy, which I did. So as I went along, just got stronger, got better, um, got married again. Um, I have four children and nine grandchildren, and so they keep me very busy. I'm now retired. I work six, my last six years in mental health. But it's not so much about the illness as the, the focus on the recovery. Um, the recovery, I know the story is important about where we've been, but the more important story is where we're going. Um, I had a quote that I read not long ago. We do not heal the past by dwelling there. We heal the past by living fully in the present. And that's pretty much what I've tried to do over the years. And just, um, I had a wonderful life before bipolar, and I wanted to get my life back, and I did. And now I have a wonderful life. I still have bipolar disorder. It is part of me. But what I've done is just concentrate on, again, the recovery, being positive, thinking about good things, and solving problems. And then the interesting thing about NAMI for me is I didn't even know they existed when I was going through uh, my illness and my recovery for the first few years. But I had a lot of support and I was determined. I was resilient. I just went to a seminar yesterday on the 16 habits of emotionally resilient people. And it was absolutely incredible. And I suddenly realized, hey, I think that's me. That's why I do well, because I am resilient. Uh, but once I got through working in mental health and I started working with NAMI and doing volunteer work, I realized I sure probably could have used when I was struggling. But um, now that I'm able to volunteer for NAMI in different capacities, I realize about the power and the value that they have for people with mental illness and the families of people with mental illness. That is such a key too. My family survived. My daughter was 16 at the time I was hospitalized. I missed her high school, I missed her prom, I missed everything. But she survived because I survived. She always told people I got better when my mom got better. And so we followed the journey together. But with NAMI, I have been involved in um, NAMI Connections, been a facilitator, been to NAMI on the Hill, uh, been to NAMI Walks. Anybody here been to NAMI Walks yet? Okay, can't miss it. Got to be sure you check that out for this fall. It happens in September, and it's their main fundraising campaign. Um, I help out Kay with Get to Know NAMI. I'm on the Speakers Bureau. So when they send out emails and need a speaker to do things like it's okay to talk about mental illness and things like that, uh, I hope to be available. And one of my favorite things is sharing my story at the family to family classes. They've asked me to come in um, on one of the sessions and um, just to talk to the people and know that they are taking the time to take a class to learn how to deal with their family member who has a mental illness. And um, so that's been very rewarding. So I continue, I'm retired now. I don't know if I mentioned that. I'm retired. <laughs> um, and so I still plan to volunteer. Um, 
We do have a, a travel trailer parked up north, so we'll be out of town a little bit, but I still plan to come in and uh, help out as much as I can. So um, again, recovery is important. We support people in their recovery and um, life will go better. Thank you. Well, Maureen and Bob, thank you very much. You know, our, the stories that we have are all different. And so, you know, we mix it up in Get to Know NAMI, but we also do in our Inner Own Voice program. And, and that's one of the programs I'll talk about um, first is that I'm going to start with the education component of our mission. And so with education, Inner Own Voice is an hour and a half program. And you can have them come to your church or your synagogue or your mosque, or you can have them come to a workplace. And we book the programs um, for two people who are in recovery with their illnesses to tell their story interspersed with a formalized um, video presentation. So you'll see kind of some national video that because it's done nationwide, the Inner Own Voice program. And then you'll hear the personal stories of two people in recovery. And we just have a nice wide range of people that speak of all ages, of all ethnic backgrounds, of all um, you know, gender identities. It really is, um, you know, if we, if we can, we try to actually pull speakers that kind of fit your audience. So I have had the opportunity to use some of the older adult in our own voice speakers when I'm speaking at nursing homes or assisted livings or things like that. So that program, um, you can go onto our website. And that's what I mostly want you to remember today is our namihelps.org. Um, you can also just use in a search engine NAMI Minnesota. But don't put in nami.org because that will take you to our national website. Nothing wrong with that. There's lots of good information there. But we want you to see our classes in Minnesota and we want you to see our support groups in Minnesota. So namihelps.org is the Minnesota website. And if all you remember today is the website, you'll have a wealth of information, you know, at your fingertips. So enter on voice, hour and a half. And so if that would be helpful for you to bring to your workplace or to any other community organizations that you belong to, just um, put in a request on our um, request um, is on the website to request a speaker. Um, another program is Family to Family, and Bob did a nice job. He and his wife Donna took Family to Family class. I've taught it for 14 years, and I do that as a volunteer above and beyond my workplace here. I give another 70 hours a year as a teacher, and it is a fine class. I wouldn't teach it for 14 years as a volunteer if it wasn't. You do need to be a family member, but that's widely, widely defined. It, you could be a best friend. You could be a spouse. You could be a partner. You could be a grandparent. Um, you could be a mother that's 80 years old that has a 55-year-old child that lives with mental illness. You could be parents that are in their 40s that have a 20-year-old family member that lives with a mental illness. So we have lots of parents in the classes, but they tend to be of all ages, the parents. Um, you can also um, you know, be an aunt or an uncle. You can, you, know, you can be a child of. My mom lived with mental illness when I was born. My mom already lived with bipolar disorder. And she lived with it from age 19 until she died at 82. You know, she didn't die of bipolar disorder. She just managed a life. Um, so also, um, besides the family to family class, which by the way is free, um, it's twice a year. So I want you to know that the September fall classes will be posted in July. So if you went to our website in July, you would see the posting of the family to family classes that start in September. We also teach it in winter, but those classes are just at the very tail end now. 12 weeks free, good investment of your time. Two and a half hours each week. So by the time you're done, 30 classroom hours that teach you some of the things of mental health that would have been helpful if you had learned younger, perhaps, but it's never too late, you know, to learn. Um, Hope for Recovery is a six-hour class, also free. Um, if you went to our website today, you'd find at least six classes posted already with dates. 
And it's typically Saturdays, although we do have um, one class that's going to be on Sunday from time to time because people of the Jewish faith can't always come on a Saturday. So we have one upcoming um, that's actually going to be at a synagogue and it's on a Sunday. So take a look at our website. We're statewide organization, so we actually um, have classes posted you know, statewide, not just metro area. And Hope for Recovery I like because it's you know six hours of basic information about mental illness. You don't have to be a family member to attend that. You can just be a person who's interested in mental illness. You could live with a mental illness and want to attend that class. And one thing I like about the class also is that it uses information from a book for about, well, maybe an hour, hour and a half of the six-hour program. And the book is called I'm Not Sick, I Don't Need Help. It's by Javier Amador. And this would have been a helpful book when I was growing up because it gives you some communication strategies. Because sometimes when family members are symptomatic, it's really hard to communicate. In other words, if I said to my mom, you know, Mom, you don't look like you're sleeping really well. You know, maybe you should get into the doctor. And my mom would say, no, I feel great. And she legitimately did feel better. She lived with bipolar disorder. And of course, she had maybe just had depression symptoms. And now she was starting to feel better. And yet now I could see that it was moving into perhaps a mania, which my mom experienced both. And so I would get this pushback from her. Or I'd say, you know, mom, you're missing a lot of work. Maybe you're going to lose your job. And I'm a small child saying this. And my mom would say, no, no, you're sick. I'm not. You're crazy. I'm not. And so this book if I'd had a few other strategies, that would have been helpful. So when my mom was stable, of course, you know, you'd have a normal conversation like everyone else. But when my mom was symptomatic, this book would have been helpful. So a little bit of this book is actually interspersed in that Hope for Recovery class. Now, Bob, our speaker today, also teaches Hope for Recovery. And so um, if, anything else you want to say about it, Bob? I think you covered it very well. It gives you some real good tools, and it's uh, six hours. And it's free. Um, the other thing I'd like you to know about is that we really have classes for people all the way, f you know, from young kids that can go to a kid shop program. So if you have a parent that lives with a mental illness or you actually are a sibling of a, a sibling that's under age 18 that lives with a mental illness, you can go to a program called Kid Shop. And that's once a month. It moves around the metro area. And those are posted on our website. So again, that would have been helpful to me as a child because my only sibling also lived with a mental illness and my mother and my dad. So consequently, you know, as a young child, that would have been helpful to me. So it's called Kid Shop, also free. And that's for kids really kind of from that 7 to 16 age range approximately. The other um, thing is that we have older adult programming. So I'm out you know, I'm out four times a week, five times a week, doing adult education and older adult education. Um, we have staff that works just with youth-related programming and parents of youth, you know, that are under 18. So we have staff that works with that, and then we have staff like me that work at the other end of the scale. We work with professionals. You know, a fair amount of my education is done with nursing home staff or with staff for Meals on Wheels volunteers, church staff, because churches do a lot of services. Um, some have parish nurses. You know, some have friendly visitors or befrienders programs. So those are people that, you know, tend to work with older adults, and I do lots of training of those folks. So just know that um, we kind of cover that whole um, continuum, of, so to speak, of um, ages. Um, we have about 32 staff, and half are part-time, and half are full-time. I'm a full-time person, um, and Brian is a part-time person, so, you know, just as an example. And we get a lot of work done, um, but if you put in requests for speakers, we use a lot of volunteers because we couldn't do our work statewide, you know, without volunteers.
Um, some other education things. I've given you a small sheet of paper that says upcoming events. So if you take a look at that, you can see that the NAMI conference is November 4th. And that's going to be at the St. Paul River Center. And the River Center um, location is um, an all-day event. And it's pretty reasonable. We haven't set our prices yet, but it's always been under $100. Full day of programming. Um, and there's different tracks. You know, there's some that are for people who live with mental illness. There are some breakouts that are for people who maybe are family members. Some of the breakouts are more geared to professionals. And I'm going to tell you about a couple of programs from the past just to kind of whet your appetite. I've gone at least 10 years, maybe I've gone longer than that, and I have to tell you I've gone to some excellent, excellent programs. So an example is a few years ago there was a panel of people from some of the major um, groups in Minnesota that are new to our country. And so um, there was someone that was from the Somalian community in mental health, there was someone that was from the Hmong community in mental health, there was someone that was from the um, Mexican-American, um, Hispanic community in mental health, and they did a panel. And there are cultural differences in mental illness. And there's not much written about it. So if any of you are looking for a master's degree thesis or a doctoral thesis, I've got your topic. <laughs> there just isn't much written. So it was very helpful to have um, the panel. And they took questions. And they also had you know, some presentation comments that they wanted to make. I'm going to point out a book that I show every time I speak out in the community. It's not a book about mental illness. But it does do a great job of talking about how Western medicine can butt heads with other cultures. So if you took a sociology class in college, you maybe read The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down. It's by Fadiman, Ann Fadiman. I've heard her speak in person in Minnesota. She's a journalist, and this is about epilepsy. So the small child that's on the cover is no longer a small child, but she was born with grand mal seizures and was diagnosed with epilepsy. And she was in a very loving Hmong family in California. And what the book does is it talks about how well-meaning Western medicine professionals and social workers um, are butting heads with a family that is very loving. They really thought their daughter was a shaman, which is very positive in the Hmong culture, and they thought that the epileptic seizures were part of being a shaman. In actuality, they were causing brain damage, which Western medicine knew that. It wasn't a translation problem because there were plenty of translators that were called in. It really was a cultural difference. So it's really a good book and it's, it's timeless, you know, even though um, the young child now, you know, it, um, is probably much, much older. It's about 15 years old. But it's really a good book if you want to talk about cultural differences in health. So I'll pass that around and if you can kind of send it to the other side of the table too, that would be great. Um, we also have um, just a wide range of children's related classes that parents find helpful. Children's challenging behaviors are an example of that. So if you have a child or you're an aunt or your grandparent that has someone in the family that has challenging behaviors that's under you know, age 18, a class like that's helpful. And you're probably wondering why don't we call it children's mental illness. You may or may not know this, but our brain doesn't fully form until we're about 26 or 27. And so consequently, you know, we try not to diagnose really early for young kids. Doesn't mean we don't help them. Doesn't mean that they might not be prescribed medication. Doesn't mean they might not go to talk therapy. Doesn't mean they might not have a plan at school, you know, that helps them deal with symptoms and things like that. But the brain isn't fully formed. And, you know, I don't really know, and probably Bob is not even sure about Michael either, but sometimes, you know, diagnoses are made young and they aren't accurate because the brain is still changing. Doesn't mean that um, you're not trying to help the child. So I think Michael got misdiagnosed a little younger because his brain probably wasn't fully formed yet either. Um, the other thing is that for education purposes, um, you actually 
you know, can go to something called mental health first aid. And I'm going to show you what the student books look like. Tomorrow I'm actually teaching mental health first aid. This one's a private class for the city of Bloomington employees. But you can have a class where you go as an individual to a class like you would to CPR or to Red Cross first aid, only it's for mental health. It's taught in every state in the United States. It's taught in international countries. It was actually developed in Australia. I've taught mental health first aid for eight years. So this is the student book. And we sometimes have some money from... Um, grants. In this case, we have some DHS, Department of Human Services, money this year. And you are very welcome to go to our website regularly to see if we actually um, have a free class that you can attend as an individual. Otherwise, the class is about $80 to $120 about to take it, but it's a full-day class. It's eight hours. So you'd know if you'd taken it because it's eight hours. Has anybody taken mental health first aid at all? Great. There's also a youth mental health first aid. So if you work with young people, and that could be your own family, could be grandkids, could be kids. Um, if you work with young people that are 12 to 18, then you would want to take a youth mental health first aid class. Teachers could take this, you know, public school teachers, Sunday school teachers, mentors for someone who's doing their bar mitzvah. I coach t-ball and I coach um, girls basketball from time to time. And so as a youth athletic coach, you know, this is helpful to take a class like this. Now, it's really very different than the adult one because, again, kids' brains aren't fully formed. And you talk about things like what's normal adolescent behavior versus, you know, what might be something that might be a problem. So I'm going to pass these books around. These are the student books. You can't just buy the book. Um, you actually do need to take, you know, the full eight-hour class. So take a look at our website because there are some free classes right now. So that might be helpful to you. <laughs> yeah, so on my books, on my books I have, because I pass them around four times a week, and I don't ever lose books, because it's bad karma, if not back to K, that is bad karma for the rest of your life. <laughs> and it seems to work just fine. So, Now I'm going to move on to support, just because there's so much to say, but we have quite a few other um, education you know, related classes. But a good way to look at those are their descriptions of all of our classes are on our website, and then the classes that are coming up. You have to keep looking because as one goes away, you know, something else might get posted. And you can also schedule a class for your own, you know, workplace or your own um, social service organization where you might volunteer, you know, things like that. Um, so support, I want to talk about a couple of things. One is support groups. And you heard Maureen br briefly mention that she used to be a support group leader called Connections. And that's a support group, group for people who live with mental illnesses. So Maureen is in recovery, so she's been trained, she and another person together. Um, they lead a support group, and she did that for multiple years. I want to say she did it five or six years. And she's retired, so that's one thing she's stepping back a little bit from. And so usually twice a month, the support groups are available. If you go on our website under support, you'll actually see all the support groups that we have posted statewide. And there's just a wide variety of them. So the connection support groups are for people who live with any mental illness. But we do have a couple that are specialized. So I'm going to point out a couple of them in case that would be of interest to you. So let me tell you about one. Um, first of all, I, let me ask you the question. I like to see what my audience knows. Um, what's the most common mental illness? Of all the mental illnesses you know about, what's the most common? Anxiety. That's correct. Most people say depression. So I've got better than a fifth grader um, a group that's with me today. But it is anxiety disorders. It's three times more common than depression. A lot of people say depression because I think we just use that word interchangeably with bad weather. 
That's a joke. You know, bad weather in Minnesota, we say, I'm so depressed. If we don't have a sunny day soon, you know. Or you have losses in life. You know, you have deaths and things like that. But grief and sadness are not major depression. So, but um, the reason I'm talking about anxiety disorders is that we have a support group that's just for people who live with anxiety disorders. It's so common. They're called Open Door, and I have some rack cards on the table if you want to take one as a reminder. But you can look specifically for an Open Door support group. Now, what I like about this support group is I don't live with anxiety disorder, but I've read the book. And they use this book, Embracing the Fear, as a workbook for the support group. So if you know someone that lives with anxiety disorders that would benefit and they want to work on their recovery, the support group actually uses a book kind of as a workbook. So open door anxiety support groups are a type of connection support group. The other um, type that's out there that might be of interest to people you know is we have folks that have told us that uh, identify by gender LGBTQ and they've said we kind of like a support group that's just ours. So there's not it's not that there's this cause and effect between having a gender identity and living with a mental illness. It's that there's a group of people that have a gender identity that would like to have a group that deals also with mental illness. So you'll find an LGBTQ group, and that um, is helpful for people that identify with that as well as also live with a mental illness. So those are some examples of specific types of connection groups we have. But most of our connection groups are really open to all people that live with a mental illness. So I'll pass this book around. Also, um, there are family support groups. So Bob and his family attended a family support group, and that's something you can do as well. So again, you'd go to the website, and you'd see the family support groups that are listed. And there's also a couple specific ones that are family you can go to any family support group, but there are a couple narrow-focused ones. One of them is a spouse and partner support group. So if your family member that's ill is your spouse or partner, there are some family support groups that are you know, focused on that. Um, there also is a support group for people like me that are children of, you know, adult children that had you know, a family member, that mother, father, grandparent, that lived with a mental illness. So there are some like that as well. Now, the other support we have is our helpline. And we have two people that make a whole full-time person. And they take calls, and these are complicated calls. We're not a crisis number. So if there's a crisis happening in your family or yourself, um, you would want to call um, 911, perhaps. Um, or you'd also want to call Crisis Connection, perhaps. Or you'd also want to um, call one of the crisis numbers for each county. Because every county in Minnesota has a mental health crisis number. They're answered 24-7. And in the bigger areas, metro area, Duluth, Mankato area, Rochester area, they're actually mobile, meaning that they can actually triage and then be able to come out to a workplace, out to a private home, out to a church, wherever the crisis is occurring. But the ones that are in the other counties are at least answered by phone um, 24-7. So our helpline is really a resource helpline. And I'm going to give you some examples of a couple calls just so you can see how complicated they are. And this is a real call. Um, so Dakota County, um, we get parents from there calling. They, they have an adult child who's in jail in Dakota County. And they said, we just found out our son's getting out of jail sometime this week. He lives with schizophrenia. He hasn't had his medication at all while he's been in jail. He doesn't have any housing. He doesn't have any health insurance. Um, we're not exactly sure what day he's going to come out of jail. He can't live with us. You know, he's had some issues with us at home. So he has no job, no housing, no medication, no health insurance plan. And so our helpline people, what they try to do is, okay, what's your priority? Because that's a lot of issues. And so 
the caller said, my priority is housing because they're going to get out and they have no place to stay the day they get out. So we just helped people talk through, well, here are emergency housing phone numbers. You know, here are, you know, how you get involved with county services so that you can start setting up services. So we just tell them how to work the system or what resources there are out there. But that could be a long call, and that's just one aspect of that call was the housing part. So you can see complicated calls, but our resources, you know, they're pretty darn good. And our helpline people understand, too, because, of course, they have family members themselves or they may live with a mental illness themselves. Now, sometimes the calls get transferred to someone who has somewhat of a specialty. So let me give you an example of one that I took because older adults are my specialty. A young woman, 35 or so, called and said, my mother lives in Chicago and my brother and I live here in Minneapolis. Our mother lives with bipolar disorder and right now she's really sick. We'd like to bring her to Minnesota and we'd like to get her hospitalized. Um, Where do we take her? Now that's also a complicated question. So the first question I said is, how old is your mother? She said, 70. I said, does your mother have Medicare? She said, yes. Because what if the mother had been 48 years old and she had a health plan maybe, but that doesn't mean that you can have services in Minnesota at 100%. You know, it, it could be that you're out of a service area. So she said 70, which is Medicare, and that's a federal program. I said, does she have any supplemental insurance? And she said, I don't know. And I said, well, how's your mother going to get to Minnesota? Because she has symptoms right now. She said, well, she'll get to the airport, and then SkyCap will get her to the plane. We'll meet her at the other end. SkyCap will get her. And I said, it's my experience that people who have acute symptoms of an illness probably can't even make it to the airport or even get a bag packed. Um, Not when your mom's stable, I'm sure she could, but maybe not right now. Do you have any family that can help? Well, no, she's by herself in Chicago. So I said, well, have you thought about driving to Chicago and bringing her back? Or have you thought about flying to Chicago? and flying back. It's just kind of helping people through the process. Then another question I asked her later in the conversation is I said, once your mom is stable and better, where's your mom going to live? Is she going back to Chicago or is she going to you know, live here in Minnesota? And she said, well, I don't know. And I said, well, the, a discharge from the hospital, if that's where she gets her services initially, um, those staff, they don't know anything about resources in Chicago. So they're not going to be able to help very much because most people receive their services in their community. You may be hospitalized for a short period of time, a day, two days, a week, you know, but not very long. So can you see how complicated these calls are? That being said, please call. I never get calls like this. Could you give me the Senior Linkage Lines phone number? Wouldn't that be the best call? 1-800. You know, I get much more complicated calls, but occasionally people call and say, can you recommend a psychiatrist? What do you think the answer is for that one? Well, no, because most people don't have cash to pay out of pocket for a psychiatrist, $500 an hour. So instead, the first question is, where's your insurance? And then once that's determined, then you call your insurance provider to ask who's in the plan. And even if I recommended, my mom and sister had a really good psychiatrist, each of them, but they're in Mankato. So I don't think that's really going to be too terribly helpful for your adolescent who is 18. So... Anyway, but we try to help people find out what are good questions to ask to see if this is a good match as a psychiatrist. We can give you some suggested questions, so we can do things like that. Now, other support things are, you heard Bob talk about person-first language. That's something that's kind of an advocacy and a support thing. But, you know, the average wait that it takes for someone for them to get help for their symptoms of mental illness is 10 years. Shocking. A lot of bad things can happen when you wait that long. If you waited 10 years with cancer, 
to get help, you'd probably die. Um, with mental illness, if you wait that long, you may get in the criminal justice system. You may lose marriages. You may lose many jobs. You may have um, been out of college because of the symptoms and things like that. And so it doesn't mean you aren't going to get better. It also doesn't mean that it's not ever too late to get help. But I'm just saying it's a young person's onset. And so it's really important, you know, that people get support. And part of that is using person first language. Because if we call crazy nuts cuckoo and we talk, you know, about people as illnesses, like you're bipolar or you're schizophrenic, can you see why people wait? It's the stigma. Who wants to be 21 years old in engineering school at, at the IT um, program at the U and say to your buddies, hey, I've got schizophrenia and I have to drop out of school for a while now and keep dating me, would, would you please? Um, you know, but there is, people will get better. And yes, please keep dating them. And yes, please, um, you know, make the college work so that the person can continue maybe at one class instead of a full load. I mean, there's lots of accommodations that can be made. But can you see why people aren't going to go and get help if it's this crazy nuts cuckoo kinds of stuff? So where you can help by supporting people is helping connect people to resources, especially your family members, coworkers. You know, I used to have 500 employees that for me. I ran large hotels. You know, I was a pretty good employer from a mental health standpoint because I got it. You know, I had family members that lived with mental illness. So don't assume your employer's not supportive. But then some employers, even though mental illness is covered by the American Disabilities Act, ADA, sometimes it is punitive. If you don't get a promotion, you don't always know that it was because of your mental illness, but how can you prove it? They could say, well, we had two cute candidates and this person is, you know, better. And so you suspect that maybe your mental illness played a role, but it's pretty hard to fight City Hall, isn't it? Especially when you're not feeling well yourself to have to take the energy to, um, you know, do something like a lawsuit. So that being said, try to make it helpful for people know that they can talk to you. We have a program called Make It Okay, and all that is is make it okay to talk about it. You know, think about if you went over to see the new baby that your high school or college friend just had, and all you think is you're coming over to rock the baby and say, what a cute baby. That's your whole purpose of going over to their house. And when you get there, it's your best friend. The mom says to you, who you've known since sixth grade, and she says, I wish this baby were dead. I wish I'd never had this baby. And you thought you were just like going to hold the baby. And all of a sudden, what are you going to say? So you need to make it okay to have a conversation. And it's good to learn in a class, what do you say? Well, you might say, I am so honored that you felt safe enough with me to tell me that you're not comfortable now with a new baby. And then you know, you're first aid or you're not a mental health professional, but you can say, how about if I stay with you? How about if we call your spouse? How about um, you know, if we call the crisis number? I'll do it right here with you. You can hear exactly what I say. That's the sort of thing that's helpful to learn in mental health first aid, or that's what's helpful to learn in one of our classes. So the good news is I'm old and there are no classes available for me. I'm still old. And I have to tell you, you know, there's lots of things that I teach, that others teach, that you can really learn some just basic conversations, how to get a conversation started. So support-wise, um, the support groups are important, but please use the helpline. Um, it's not an emergency line. We answer those within, you know, 24 hours in business days, typically. Um, the other thing I want you to know is we have booklets that can be support for you. And I put a sample of all of our NAMI Minnesota booklets out here. And you can look at them, but you're here today, so I actually, if you want to take a copy of a booklet, our rack out there has, you know, copies of different booklets. But all of these booklets are on our website, namihelps.org. You can read all of these booklets because we're not trying to kill more trees and we just don't have the money because they cost about $2.
$5 each to print. If you want to order some, because maybe you work for an organization that you want to put some out, you know, in a lobby or something like that, we have an order form that you can order them. And you also can go on our website, you know, and order any of our booklets. I want to point out a few of them. And one of them is because um, mental illnesses are young person onset. Take a class from me, I'll give you all the details. But um, we have a book that's Transition. And Transition is, this is an age group, you know, kind of that 16 to 30 years old, um, when mental illnesses sometimes show themselves. Sometimes earlier. With anxiety disorders, it's much earlier. But Transitions um, is a book that's helpful. It says why on it. For parents that have young people in their family, kind of that transitional age of adolescence. And it also tells things about the first episode psychosis program, um, you know, things about youth act teams, things that you wouldn't know about unless someone that you love um, has you know, develop some signs and symptoms. We also have some classes called progressions, and they're for young people that are kind of that 15 to 22-year-old age range, and they're really good. Um, they're taught by young adults that are in their 20s, and they also um, have topics that are really germane to that population. So I know they've had classes on how do you go to college and manage an mental illness. It's certainly possible, but how do you navigate? Um, some colleges have a better reputation for helping people that live with mental illness. Um, the other thing is, um, how do you date? How do you disclose when you're dating you know, that you live with a mental illness? Those are topics that people in this transition age that's the kind of topics they want. So those classes are called progressions. When they're being offered, they're posted on our website. We're just finishing one up in the South Metro right now, but there'll be others. So I'm going to pass you know, this book just so you can see what this one looks like. Another book that I really like is Hope for Recovery. Now, if you know nothing about the mental health system, and who would, because in 10th grade health class, you didn't learn anything. Um, so Hope for Recovery explains just the basics of the adult mental health system in Minnesota. And if you've lived in other states, which I have, you know, it's not done the same way in every state. You know, we provide services through the county. In some states, it's done through the state. Um, also, you know, what's an ACT team? What's an arms worker? What's a case manager? How do you get a case manager? Some very basics are in here. Now, look how thin it is. This could be like seven times the size, but it gets you started on some of the basics about adult mental health in Minnesota. So I'll pass that around. So take a look at these. These are samples, but I have extras of all of them. Um, I also have rack cards that will help remind you about like open door support groups. You're welcome to take those. If you have a family member that lives with Borderline personality disorder, that's a type of mental illness. We have a 12-week class just for family members that have someone in their family with that diagnosis. It's a tough illness. And so there's been a class that's actually been written just for that one particular mental illness. So it's for adults, or it's for family members that have someone in their family that lives with borderline personality disorder. So we have smoking cessation, and we have two people on our staff that work on smoking cessation because... This is, sorry to have to say this, but the main, main reason that people die younger that live with mental illness, it's about a 25-year age difference between people who live with mental illness and people in the general population, primarily smoking. So 30% of people that live with mental illness smoke. Um, in the general population nationwide, it's 20%. And that keeps going down. That 20% is lower than it was, high, it was higher before. But the one for people living with mental illness has stayed at 30% for a really long time. So people that live with mental illness can also stop smoking, but we have to support them. So we have lots of classes available for that. And the classes are for professionals to help, the professional to help the people that they serve that smoke, 
that want to quit. And then also there are classes for people who do smoke that want to quit. And so it's very fascinating information. You'd be surprised. Um, suicide prevention. We have one person on our staff that just works on suicide prevention. And it's also, if you don't know much about suicide, it would be great if you could take a suicide prevention class. There are one-hour classes. There are three-hour classes. There's just a wide, wide range of resources available to you. If you have youth, you know, like at a high school, we teach very different things that when it's a youth that's involved with suicide than we do for adults. So take advantage. Those sorts of things are also on our website. And now I'm going to talk just a little bit about advocacy. Sue touched on it, but I want you to know how you can get involved from an advocacy standpoint. Now, on the sheet that you filled out for Get to Know NAMI, you could put on there that you want to be on our legislative committee. They meet year-round. They meet in this room, but people join us from all across the state, so they just join us by audio. That's what that large black spider is on in the center of the room. And so you can join the legislative committee, particularly if, if advocacy is something that really resonates with you. We also have a day on the Hill. It was in March this year. And the day on the Hill is really inspiring um, because people bus in from all across the state. And did you know that there are 14 days on the Hill every day during session? The nurses are there, the truck drivers are there, the accountants are there. But often, not this past year, meaning this past March, but often Governor Dayton has come to our day on the Hill. And you're like, how does he go to all these? Well, he doesn't. And, but he lives with a mental illness. So I don't care what your politics are. Isn't it great to have a governor that lives with a mental illness? He talks openly about living with major depression. He talks openly about managing a substance use problem. You know, he's um, you know, in recovery, but you know, he has to manage it. And so I, I just think that's terrific. You know, he talks about it. That helps reduce stigma. So you can go to a day on the Hill. We always know about three months in advance when that day is going to be. But it usually is March, sometimes April. The other thing you can do is do the walk. Now, the walk is a fundraiser for us, but you do not have to raise money to do our walk. You can just come and show up. We get about 5,000 people. It's at Minnehaha Falls. Um, you have on your small sheet of paper, you have the date in September. It's always the 4th. Saturday. So you even know when 2018 is. You even know when 2019 is. It's always a fourth Saturday. And it is very inspiring. Um, Brian and I have done it many years. I have a walk team. You don't have to have a walk team. You do have to sign up because we need to know that you're there for liability purposes. And we want to count you. So um, you do need to register, but you can register that day at the park, preferably register in advance online. But the walk is inspiring. There's good live music. There's um, the tables with information. You can be a walk sponsor. Your organization, you know, for a very modest amount of $250, you can be a walk sponsor. Um, it just, um, I have to tell you, it's one of my favorite activities um, of the year. Also, volunteer opportunities. Um, Kate Hersey is our volunteer coordinator. And you can be a volunteer for NAMI. First, you fill out a volunteer application. So you go on our website, and then we'll try to match you with something that suits you. Not everybody likes to do 14 years, 70 hours a year. But you can do a one-off opportunity. I'd say work the state fair with me. I got married at the state fair. So you could actually, you could actually work the state fair booth. NAMI has a booth, three-hour shift. You know, it's fun. You also could do our walk. We use about 150 volunteers at the NAMI walk. You could just do a one-day one gig. Or you could be a support group leader for five years, twice a month. Or you could come to our office. Uh, Susie that greeted you today, Susie took my family to family class. I put the arm on her and now she volunteers, you know, one day a week. I'm working a couple hours at the desk. So I'm just saying there are lots of opportunities. Kate um, 
is on vacation, so I can answer a lot of volunteer questions if you want to, but you can mark the sheet too to say you're interested in volunteering, but fill out the application if you would um, online. That helps us get started. Now, I'll be here for questions, but I'm um, just a pleasure to have you here. Um, take a banana. That's a joke. Right. So look at the materials here. If you need copies of the booklets, I can help you. But use person-first language. If you can't volunteer, donate money. There is an envelope if you want to become a member. A membership for people that have limited dollars is $3, and it's shared. $1 goes to national, $1 goes to the state, $1 goes to your local affiliate. Um, it's $35 for a family membership, and those are going to change pretty soon, those prices. So if you are interested, you can leave the money with me, and I'll make sure our um, development folks get that, but that's what the envelope is. It, uh, sorry. Yeah. Um, what does being a member... Good question. First of all, you get counted because when Sue and our legislative folks, they're saying I represent this many people. So partly it's that. For $3, that's worth the $3. But you get the advocate newsletter. And so I have a sample of that over here. But the advocate newsletter, um, four times a year, it's our state newsletter. You get this. The $3 doesn't even cover you know, the mailing and the printing. Um, you get a national newsletter four times a year, and if there's an affiliate newsletter, you get that also. You get a discount at the NAMI conference, you know, the one in November every year. You get a discount on that. And so there's lots of value for your $3 or for your $35. It's an annual membership. So thanks, good question. Is any of this classes in other languages? Good question. Um, the answer is we would, if we had unlimited dollars, we would do every language spoken in Minnesota. We have some Spanish resources and we have some classes that are Spanish speaking. That's the largest population in Minnesota that is not English speaking. It's only because of money that we don't. So um, our materials, we have a few things only translated to Spanish, but unfortunately not to very many other languages. But we do help people with resources where they can find practitioners that speak languages. So if you ever have someone that needs that, let us know. So good question. Thank you. Um, leave all your money to us when you die. And then when that happens, then we can translate. <laughs> tell, your kids, tell your kids to earn their own money, you know, that you're not leaving them anything. NAMI Minnesota champions justice, dignity, and respect for all people affected by mental illnesses. Through education, support, and advocacy, we strive to eliminate the pervasive stigma of mental illnesses, affect positive changes in the mental health system, and increase the public and professional understanding of mental illnesses. NAMI Minnesota vigorously promotes the development of community mental health programs and services, improved access to services, and increased opportunities for recovery. Call us at 651-645-2948 or email namihelps at namimn.org. NAMI Minnesota's website is namihelps.org. Outside of Minnesota, visit nami.org to find your state NAMI organization.